Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Professor Timothy Snyder, the Levin Professor of History at Yale University, author of numerous books, many of which I've read, including On Tyranny, The Road to Unfreedom, Black Earth, and Bloodlands. So glad to have you here with me, given your schedule and your constant international moving around. Very glad to be with you. I'm setting this up because the focus of our conversation is going to be an essay that you published earlier this year that I'll share a little bit more in detail with the listeners. But I do want to spend some time on the book you wrote, I think about a year and a half ago, give or take, called The Road to Unfreedom. And you and I have had some exchanges about that book via email, but I want you to share why you thought it was important to focus on the Ukraine, Russia, the United States at that particular time, and why that book seems to be so prescient given the political and social environment that we're in right now in late 2019. Okay, so you're putting me in a corner right at the top of this interview because you're asking me, you know, why I was right. Yeah. There's no more uncomfortable position for an author to be in than, <laughs> than that one. So The Road to Unfreedom is a history book, even though it's about the present. It's a history book about the 2010s. And one of the reasons that I wrote it was that I wanted to say that we can make sense of things. So the 2010s are the time when social media arrives. It's a time when everybody gets a smartphone. It's a time when all of our time seems to fragment and disappear. Everybody forgets about the past. One thing I was trying to do was to say, history can help us make sense. I can write a history of the last you know, decade or so using lots of sources, going in chronological order, and I can explain something important. And that important thing is the problems that democracy is having. So I'm interested in how what goes wrong in the U.S. is either similar to what goes wrong in other countries or even is forecast by what goes wrong in other countries or sometimes is even caused by what goes on in other countries. And so that's a second reason why I wrote this book is that in the U.S., I mean, as a like generalization, we kind of forgot that other countries really exist. I mean, something only really exists if it can impose itself on you. And I think we forgot that other countries really exist. And the story that I was telling in Road to Unfreedom is a story about general factors like the digitalization of the world and wealth inequality. But it's also a particular story about how Russia took advantage of those things, took advantage of our weaknesses to intervene in our elections in 2016. You know, and so by now, I mean, pretty much everybody who's been paying attention understands that Russia did intervene in our elections. But for me, that wasn't surprising because it was part of, of a whole bunch of bigger trends. And I had been watching those, those bigger trends. I guess this is the third part of my answer. What I saw in the U.S. in 2016 was very similar to what I'd seen in Ukraine in 2014 and in Russia before that. And so I thought that here we can actually make sense of what's happening, bring the rest of the world into it, and maybe help Americans understand themselves a little bit. Because when something happens in the U.S., what Americans do is they say, wow, this has never happened to anybody you know, before, ever. This is really surprising. And the next move after that is you say, well, 
you can't do anything about it because nobody's ever had the experience of this surprising thing before, right? So I was trying to say, no, it actually all makes a kind of sense. Here are the factors, here are the actors. And now that this has happened, let's figure out how to go forward. It seems like this, this making sense of things, there's vested business interest in that we don't make sense of things. It seems like this idea of information slash disinformation as mirrored concepts is very much an operating business model for many in media and journalism. I think you'd understand that better than me, but I'll make a big general point about how I see that. One of the dominant assumptions of the the liberal, you know, I mean, like the Anglo-Saxon liberal tradition of free speech is that if there's a competition, then the truth is going to win out. And that strikes me as just spectacularly naive. If anything, it's very close to the opposite. Like as we're moving towards this thing, which is very like pure capitalism, you know, where in the sense that what's being sold is not actually stuff anymore, but somebody else's impressions about what you might find attractive in the world is what's being sold. As we move towards that, it's ever less the facts that are out there competing and it's ever more techniques of arousing emotion that are competing in the world. And if techniques of arousing emotion are what's competing, then the facts don't even have a chance. The funny thing about our world as I see it is that we all talk about the news the whole time, but we don't actually pay anybody to go out and find the news. You know, this, this is like my very kind of conservative read on what you're saying. If we wanted to have the facts, we would actually pay people to go out and report them. But that's precisely what we don't do. You know, we don't do that at all. We let that get crowded out to just a couple thousand people. And instead, it's this disenlightenment or this de-enlightenment where the money and the resources go is into the digitalization, which basically thrives on figuring out what gets us going, what we react to, what we like, what we're afraid of. So I don't see it exactly as like the other side of the coin. Like I see the facts as like a threatened, like an endangered species, you know, or I see the facts as like this precious rare thing that only humans can create. And I see the disenlightenment as the main trend. You know, the disenlightenment is the easy thing to do. People tend to take this kind of lackadaisical position that like at the end of the day, it's all going to get sorted out and the truth's going to rise to the top. And like, no, that doesn't happen. If you care about the truth, you can't be laissez-faire about it. And I think in the book, particularly in chapter six, because I highlighted that originally, you talked a lot about this broken social contract. And when you talk about this making sense of things, it seems that cultural amnesia that you highlighted where we think, okay, this particular set of circumstances is unique. No other group has dealt with it. And so now there's no solution or we're creating a solution in this particular moment. Do you think some of that traces back to this broken social contract, this idea that education is devalued, you know, facts are debatable issues rather than what they should be, which is facts. So what we're seeing now is a culmination of decades of this de-enlightenment. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And there's a lot going on in that question. I mean, it goes back to another question. Unfortunately, there are just powerful interests who are at work against parts of the Enlightenment, like science, for example. So the experiments proving global warming were actually carried out in the 19th century. And there's a consensus about it by the 1960s. So, you know, the middle of the 20th century, by the late 80s, when kind of the action of our historical moment starts, everybody knows there's global warming. And that the tack that some of the big energy companies take is to precisely not just deny the facts, but to deny the science behind the facts. You have then hundreds of millions of dollars at least 
directly devoted to de-enlightening American citizens about science, about the basic enlightenment foundational premises. If you understand the world, you can start from there to understand humans. But if you don't understand the world, then there goes the enlightenment. The social contract matters in another way too. I mean, the American social contract, at least for white people, there's this thing called the American dream. And the idea there is that, you know, you're going to do better than your parents or you have a fair style of doing better your parents. And facts come into this because people tend to believe that facts are useful to them if facts are useful in their lives. And so when you take social mobility away, which it's fair to say we've consciously done as a matter of policy since about 1980 or 81, to be precise, when you take social mobility away, it makes it harder for people to appreciate the facts because the facts aren't helping you move forward. If you're not moving forward, then you start looking for reasons why you're not moving forward. And the reasons why you're not moving forward might be that everybody's out to get you or that other people are somehow advantaged, whatever it is. But if you're, not, if you're moving forward, it's easier to take on facts because facts are always a little bit unpredictable, a little bit challenging. And then that challenge you can take up, you can go somewhere with it. And then the third thing about the social contract is the simplest thing, which is, as you say, public education. No matter how you look at it, we're not doing very well on public education. That directly causes this disenlightenment problem, but also indirectly causes it because public education is one of the foundations for social mobility. I want to use this opportunity to kind of segue into the essay because there's a couple of things that we've talked about that I think come up in the essay quite a bit. One is this idea that we can distinguish certain realities. So we have the ability to, by our own logic, make sense of the world. And I think one of the arguments is that it's not as easy to do that. So I'm going to set this up a little bit because I'm going to read the full title of the essay, which is what Turek told us about the digital threat to a human future. This is going to be in the show notes, so we'll have a link to it. I was really blown away by this particular essay because it, A, it gave me background to the Turing test that I didn't otherwise know. So my entire framing of what this very culturally shared idea of being able to assess human being versus machine and how we're going to make that assumption as we go toward a future built more on AI and machine learning and all of those kind of things is completely wrong. Or it's been simplified to the point of, I think, missing very important nuance that this essay shared and enlightened me to. So I had my own enlightenment period and it encompassed gender, a lot of, of different things. So why don't we start there with why the basis for the real Turing test, and, and if you want, you can share a little bit more about what that is, why that became such an important basis for understanding our future, our human future. Okay, so I'll give that a shot. Alan Turing was a British mathematician and computer scientist. He's one of the first people you can truly call a computer scientist. He was one of the inventors of the concepts that are behind computers. And he thought forward to what would be possible with computers and what wouldn't be possible with computers. He's known for being one of the code breakers at Bletchley Park, who helped break Enigma, the German code Enigma, which was important in the, in the Western Front in the Second World War. Turing was also what we would think of as gay. And indirectly, this ended up maybe costing him his life because he was arrested and convicted by the same state who he basically saved in the Second World War. And not long after that, committed suicide. The Turing test is his very creative answer to the question, how do we know when machines think? And his answer is that the best approximation for knowing that a machine thinks is 
not being able to tell a machine from a human. And then, but then when we get into the mechanics of all of this, it starts to become very interesting because in the mechanics of the test, he has just to start it out, he has a man on one side, you know, of a barrier and a woman on one side of the barrier. And you're trying to figure out who is a man and who is a woman. Okay. That's interesting in and of itself. And then in the second stage, he takes the man away and then you have a woman and a computer on one side. And that's also kind of interesting because, you know, you have this poor woman who first has to insist that she's a woman when there's a man trying to pretend she's a woman. And then the second step, she's behind this barrier with the computer. And I think in general, people just don't notice this gender aspect to it and how odd that is. But in particular, it got me thinking because it got me asking, okay, well, what actually is a human conversation? Like, what's the lowest common denominator between a man and a woman that's like a human conversation? And how would you know you were having it? And what are the things about the ways that men and women communicate with each other that are different enough that you would say, okay, that's a person, you know, or as opposed to that's a woman or as opposed to that's a man. And then I also, I mean, I think I just had a footnote on this, but I also got to thinking about, okay, well, what, what if you ran the whole thing with like a black person and a white person? Where would that lead you? Instead of a man and a woman, you started out with a black person, a white person, you know, and you had to try to tell the difference. And the white person was trying to pretend to be the black person. The black person was trying to pretend to be the white person. But the basic question is like, the whole thing assumes that there's like this underlying humanity. But where is that exactly? What does that actually mean? What does it mean to correctly guess that something on the other side of a barrier is human? And that seemed to me to be like a very profound question and like a different basis to get at this Turing test. Because like the, the way the Turing test is solved today is basically by gaming it. The Turing test has been passed. Debatably, it's been passed. Machines have been created or programs have been created that make us think they're human. But they usually do this by way of some kind of pretty simple trick. Like the latest example is that the program purported to be an immigrant and therefore its English wasn't perfect. But what does it really mean to think of a baseline human that a baseline computer would then be like? And there's a flattening there that the gender piece was what really leaped out to me because in its initial stages of that frame, it sort of disembodies the female gender in a way, right? Like the woman has to first prove herself in this test, whereas like a man's humanity is assumed and almost seems like a benchmark in the way that I read it. And mm -hmm. the woman in the test also doesn't have the ability to judge anyone. The judgment is merely coming from a male perspective of what he thinks a woman is or will express herself. And that, I don't know, that was just at, in that time and in these times, it's just really striking that that's how we broke that out. Bingo. That was very much on my mind too, because there seems to me to be a relationship, which is not an obvious one between the digitalization of everything and the um, discussion of sexual assault, which is going on. When I say it's not obvious, I mean, I think something is happening with the way that we regard or rather don't regard bodies as belonging to humans. Let me start this a different way. There's a philosopher who I really like called Edith Stein. She was German, Jewish, eventually became a nun, was murdered at Auschwitz. A very interesting life. But she had this interesting thought that we start to recognize people as people by way of their bodies. And she used to, I mean, in English, there's a word body, which just means like a human body. It could also mean a heavenly body. But in German, there's this word Leib, which just means a living human body. 
And she was preoccupied with how the body is a kind of borderland that like it is the universe, but it's not the universe, right? There's no clear point where we stop and the universe starts. And she got this idea when she was a nurse in the First World War. She's a woman. It's not a sexual idea at all, you know, in, in origin, but she's a nurse. She's tending wounded men in the First World War. That's where this all comes from. You, know, you have to identify with the body. And so in the Turing test, like the way that Turing imagines the test going, you know, in this first stage, there's a man and there's a woman and they're both behind this barrier and the man is imitating a woman. And he starts by talking about like a hairstyle or whatever it is. Then the woman suddenly is thrown into the defensive because he's talking about her body. And then she mm -hmm. has to start like proving that it's her body and not his body, right? So like it's, it's, it's suddenly immediately about bodies, but the fact that it's her body is like, it's irrelevant. It's just a question of like proving like up and down, A or B, yes or no, who is actually the woman and who is actually the man in this conversation. And I was kind of rereading this because this whole essay is based on me rereading a bunch of texts that I read as like a mm -hmm. technologically you know, inclined teenager, basically. Rereading it, I was struck by like, as you say, by her powerlessness because she's in this weird position where all he has to do to win is to pretend to be her. But for her to win, she has to prove that she's herself. That's a much more demanding position to be in. And the stakes are much higher. If you're a woman and you can't prove you're a woman, something's happened to you. If you're a man, you can't prove that you're a woman. That's not really such a big deal. You just lost yeah. the game and you walk away. And like that difference where the same situation for one person is a game, but for the other person, it's really about who you are. That struck me as being very appropriate to our own moment and our own sexual politics. So that's another thing, as you say, that got me thinking. The stakes are incredibly higher when you have to prove your personhood. And I feel like we're having that conversation in many parts of society. And the body concept that you bring up is also interesting to me because as we get more digital, as we disembody ourselves, a lot of the technological assistants are voiced by women, or at least meant to mimic women's voices in terms of AI assistants, whether it's Alexa or Siri. So in, in a weird way, we're fighting this gender concept in both our physical and in our digitization. Yeah, there's all kinds of really interesting and mostly frightening things going on there. Because what the machines are really good at doing is picking up empirical associations, but the machines don't have any values about those empirical associations. So if historically men reply to a certain kind of advertisement, that's fine, right? That's just the way it is. That means men must be suited for this job. The machine isn't going to ask, hmm, Maybe the problem was with how we phrase the job ad, right? That's not the machine's mm -hmm. problem. The machine is just looking for, mindlessly, looking for associations between this thing and that thing. So if historically, I mean, this is another true example, like if historically African-Americans are more likely to be arrested, fine, right? That's just the way it is. That's an association. We found it. So therefore, let's mark digitally African-Americans as being more likely to be arrested, right? And then that affects people's real lives because the computer doesn't have any values. It has no values. You know, it just looks for these associations. So it doesn't ask like, okay, is there anything wrong with taking history and making it permanent by making it, an, you know, into an algorithm which guides our decisions about parole or guides our decisions about customer service and, and, and the voices that we use. That a machine doesn't care seems like too weak a formulation for all of this. And then, I mean, there are other stronger things too with women 
because men watch so much, I mean, of course, not you and not me, right? Those other guys watch so much pornography that there's also a kind of distancing between like the woman and her own body, right? Because if a guy, you know, takes in 100,000 women doing the particular things that he wants them to do, that's a very strong association. And I'm reporting this now from what women tell me then there's an expectation that that body on that real person does those things. But maybe like that body on that real person likes other things or doesn't like those things, right? And I think that's, that's another way that like the digital gets between us and the body. It messes us up in that way. And in the essay, there's a point that's made about the interrogator, person who's making the judgments. And this also kind of comes back to another argument around facts, that facts will always rise to the top. My point to connect those two ideas is that it seems like we allow ourselves as people kind of going through this experience, but also the interrogator in the essay as having a certain level of impartiality. Yeah, We walk into these situations thinking we are impartial actors able to suss through these illusions. And the reality seems to be much more challenging. Yeah. You're knowing the things that I was trying to get, but in a different way. So the Turing test has this interrogator and what is never queried is who the interrogator is, you know, where, where he or she is coming from, although it's pretty clear it's a he. The assumption, it's this baseline liberal free speech type assumption. The assumption is that you can simply be scientifically neutral about these questions that like that's, that's just out there. Whereas, of course, we know that like any actual scientific experiment is hugely socially and psychologically conditioned. I mean, there are, you know, there's a whole realm of experiments which are now largely illegal, where, you know, the whole point is to get people in an experimental situation because they will behave differently in an experimental situation than Mm -hmm. they'll behave in reality. So the mere fact that it's an experiment will change C. Sorry, the interrogator is called C. The mere fact that you're in an experiment doesn't make you, you know, more rational. It actually alters you in certain ways. But yeah, I mean, the idea that you can just stand back and judge these things is essential. And it gets back to your earlier question about why that stuff matters so much. One of the reasons I was focusing on the Turing test is that it's foundational, not so much for computer science, but for how computer scientists and coders think about the world, right? The Turing test, as it's understood, not as we're talking about it, right? But as it's understood, is foundational for how those folks very often see the world. Like, here I am, I'm the neutral observer. I'm not doing anything that's morally questionable. I'm just reporting things the way that they are. Whereas meanwhile, behind that barrier between you and the rest of the world, there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on. But you just, your judgment about that, yes or no, up and down, you know, logical, not logical, profitable, not profitable. That's just a neutral judgment. There's no way that you can query that you know, this is Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress or whatever, right? Like there's just simply a lack of understanding that behind that screen or behind that barrier out in the world, you're actually making a moral difference one way or another, right? When you're choosing one thing or not another, responding to one thing or not another, you're actually changing the world. You're not just observing it. When you talk about that observation and this, this person who is making or assuming that they're not making judgment, they're the rational figure, the classical rational figure, I keep coming back to this so-called marketplace of ideas, right? That we exist in this space and we can administer or we can arbitrate what is true because we are rational. 
But if you're coming from this space of history mattering, where we started this conversation, how can we assume we are rational when we've had this history of maybe not being as rational or having our rationality pushed in certain directions? So do you foresee a way where we can insulate ourselves against misinformation? Because misinformation seems to be a business. Okay, I have two answers to that. I think the position of, you know, the default that I'm a rational observer because I think I am, you know, because I'm a scientist or because I'm in some position of authority is obviously not tenable as such. Like that can't stand up to any kind of sociological or anthropological, psychological, philosophical critique. However, the posture, I'm a scientist, I'm going through methods, is a perfectly legitimate and fruitful posture. My notion would be that that posture would then have to be combined with other postures. Like at the very end of the essay, I try to recast all of this and I say, okay, that posture of being a scientist and trying to make judgments, that's fine. It's just, it's not definitive. It's just, it's useful, but there are other postures. And then I think of the people who are behind the barrier in the first stage of the test. I try to make the man into a positive figure by thinking of him as a kind of, you know, a kind of jester, someone who mocks and imitates and like, okay, that's not the only thing in the world and it's not good in and of itself, but it could be useful to be a posture, to imitate, you know, to joke. And then the posture of the, of the figure, the woman who's called B, her posture of telling the truth from her own experience, that's also not perfect, right? I mean, telling the truth from your own body, from your own experience, it's important, but it's not the whole story either, right? And so the point that I'm trying to make at the end of the essay is like, you wouldn't want to have any of these three things alone, but some kind of pluralist discussion coming from these three knowledge positions, right? The one that aims for impartiality, the one that aims for mockery, the one that aims for authenticity, those plus a whole bunch of other knowledge positions together might actually get us somewhere if we recognize all of them as having some validity and having some limits. But answering your question directly, I think that in addition to that kind of moral pluralism about knowledge, we also just have to really heavily validate the profession of producing facts. So like here I will be like Joe liberal, you know, with a footnote, like I do believe in the pursuit of truth. Like we can have a long conversation about what that is, but I do believe that there are facts in the world that can be rendered by humans to humans and that we have to pay people to do that job and that that job's really important. I don't think you can beat disinformation, but you can actually generate information. And like, that's the part of this story that we tend to lose sight of that. Yeah. Okay. We're being overwhelmed by disinformation, but there's a dialectical relationship when people no longer have access to facts about their actual world, their local world, I mean, then they're more vulnerable to disinformation because they're unmoored. They're not reading the newspaper. They're looking at a screen. Suddenly politics becomes polarized because why would Republicans and Democrats disagree about the school board or about mercury in the water, you know, their own water that they're drinking? Okay, but about, you know, Washington, D.C. stuff, sure, they're going to disagree, right? And so when the local news disappears, then everybody becomes polarized. And then everybody also starts to become more vulnerable to these big conspiratorial, you know, disinformation type explanations of things. So my answer to that is we have to actually produce the facts if we want to give people a chance against disinformation. Of course, it's like a food. I mean, there's a phrase called news desert, which Penelope Abernathy at the University of North Carolina uses. It's like a food desert, right? Like you can't blame people for eating bad food if like that's all they've got, right? You can't blame people for consuming disinformation and believing it if there's no alternative. I hear you. I, I want to agree with that. And I don't disagree in full, but I feel like there is information out there, right? Like 
you've written lots of books, right? Like I, I spend time, like seriously, just as a, this is just a personal anecdotal thing, but I'll spend time on, on Facebook, for example, right? List the perfect misinformation machine with people that I really respect and they're friends of mine, right? They were not even ideologically opposed, but they'll say things or have positions where I'm like, fuck, just read a book, dude. Like that's in a book. <laughs> like you can go and get that in yeah. Eric Foner's Reconstruction or, you know, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow or whoever, right? Or any number of your books. So mm-hmm. when they start to throw around these ideas, I feel like it's just for, I don't know what it is. It's not for lack of it being there. It's just for lack of, I don't know, not seeking it or not understanding it if it's sought. I love the fuck read a book posture. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> that's my breadbasket too. But I do want to make a specific point about that, which is that for you, and I'm going to guess your friends, the New York Times is kind of a local newspaper. Yeah, definitely. Whereas for most people in this country, it's not. And just as like a mathematical reality, there is, I'll cite the figures roughly, I think only about one quarter of people in the U.S. have a daily newspaper which covers their county. And if you, if you count weeklies, it's better, but like then it's more like three quarters have a weekly. But And the trend is down, 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 down while we're talking, you know, these newspapers are, are closing, reports are getting fired. And so, of course, like Eric Foner, you know, hallelujah, people should read. I'm with you. But thinking about like the, like a person in rural Ohio, which is kind of where I'm from, I look at the local newspapers there and what happens. People need that thing. You know, God love them, but they're probably not going to read Eric Foner. I mean, some of them, maybe I'm going to go there on purpose next time and like promote Eric Foner. But what they need is, I mean, before you get to Eric Foner or to me or to you, right? What you need is like a local newspaper growing up. Like you get grounded, like, okay, this is my locality. It's connected to this county, to this state, to this country, to this world. And then like bigger things can make sense to you, I think, if you've got that. That's the particular point I'm making. I agree with you. Like people spout off about stuff where like they spout off about the author of a book, but they don't, you know. Yeah, they don't read the book. Like you don't have to read the book, right? That guy's last name sounds like this to me, you know, whatever. I agree with you about that. But like, in general, the point I'm trying to make is about local news and local factuality and like everyday factuality. And I definitely do agree with that. And I think that's why that's been gutted, right? I know it sounds like conspiracy guy, but I just think all of these, these are long-term trends and they're really exercises in, in branding. So when I think about when you discuss the Asimov stories, for example, which are very much part of the longer essay. So there's two Asimov stories that are quoted or referenced rather in the larger essay. One is evidence and the other one is the inevitable conflict. And what strikes me about these two essays or these two stories and the way they're incorporated into the overall thesis is that I see from these stories from the 50s, this techno-optimism that Mm. starts to get embedded into popular science fiction as a leading way of, we think that as long as the technology gets better, we'll do better, but we're really not asking what better means. Yeah. That branding of techno-optimism, like how do you see that playing out where we're, we're trusting the Zuckerbergs of the world, the Peter Thiels of the world? Yeah. And it's problematic, no? 
<laughs> Did I lead you or? <laughs> you're good. You're good. You're good. I mean, Peter Thiel is definitely good for a great conversation, but I think it's a mistake. One of the profound truths of all, you know, of ancient political philosophy is that you can't trust any one person, right? Like, yeah. And, and like one obvious thing is when you get into a world of digital oligarchy, I mean, these guys are, they're good for this and they're good for that, but they're not good for everything. And I mean, because they've managed to do something in one field of life doesn't mean that they're good ethicists. Trying to put the point in the bland way, they're not always good ethicists. On your techno-optimism point, I completely agree. Like, I think it's a way of crushing, you know, if we want to use the Enlightenment word again, it's a way of crushing one side of the Enlightenment with the other side of the Enlightenment. Because one side of the Enlightenment says, there's no barrier to knowledge, we can understand everything, and we understand everything, we can master everything. But then there's the other side of the Enlightenment, the Kant side of the Enlightenment, which, you know, distinguishes the stars above from moral reason within. And Hume and Kant, like Hume points out that you cannot derive your own moral convictions from the world the way that it is. Your moral convictions are something else. They come from somewhere else. That side of the Enlightenment, which says we're only free people because we have a moral life, which is not determined by the laws of physics and our applications of the laws of physics, which is technology. So one side of the Enlightenment is crushing the other side of the Enlightenment. If we say the tech is just going to answer the question, whatever, you know, I mean, Voltaire makes fun of, you know, of Leibniz. He makes fun of the idea that everything is for the best and the best of all possible worlds. But if you believe that tech automatically makes things better, that's where you are, right? You're saying like everything is for the better in this better of all possible worlds or everything is ever better. And that's just not true. And like, it's a way of not asking the moral questions. Like this is the striking thing. And this is why it often runs in train with libertarianism because libertarianism is a way of not asking the moral questions. Like if the market said it, it's right. And there's no court of appeal, like that's it. You know, whatever happened is okay. And with tech, it's the same thing. Like if it's more advanced, whatever that means, therefore it must be morally okay. It's like something that poses for an ethical position, which actually makes ethics impossible. You end up saying whatever is, is right, but you do it from position of a kind of moral certainty, which is what makes it all so frightening. And yeah, the Asimov, I mean, man, I, that's another thing. I mean, I love that. I love that stuff and I still admire him. I mean, he's a wise man in many ways. When I read those stories again, I mean, you're citing the stories which are among his robot stories where the questions are, how do you get robots and artificial intelligence to behave morally? And I, you know, his, his answers are really inadequate. And they're answers that I think a lot of people, you know, in Silicon Valley would take to be more or less normal. But in this first story you're citing, what happens is that a robot, you know, rises to the heights of political power. And when I first read that story as a teenager, I agreed with the premise. Yeah, well, the robot's always reasonable. You know, the robot has been programmed to always do the most good for the highest number. What could be wrong? When I read it again, like in our political environment today, I realized, well, yeah, but the robot concluded that the robot should have all the power because the robot knew what the best was for the best possible number. But nobody is there to challenge what the best is, right? You know, whatever stupid 16-year-old libertarian programmed into his head, the robot's head, I mean, as the good, like that's there forever. And now the robot's going to make those calculations. And the other thing I noticed from it was that the robot lied. You know, the robot lied to get where he was. And you know, that struck me much more now than it did back then. Like the line itself is wrong. Like the line itself is dehumanizing the electorate. Like that's wrong. Like it might be leading to something, but the line itself is an evil. But the evil of line isn't calculated into like the hedonistic utilitarian notion of the right and wrong, which is the easiest for robots to deal with because you can quantify it. You know, you can say like everybody's going to be happier or everyone's going to feel more pleasure. But lying to them to get you there. Like there's something dehumanizing about that. 
all of these are questions of, of ethics, right? They're questions of morality at a time when we are moving away from social sciences, right? Everything is STEM-based, right? So that now becomes the basis. I'm, I'm saying everything with a big cloak, but that's where the conversations are being had about how are we preparing our young people for the future? It's about giving them this education that is very technology and tech-based, maybe at the detriment of these more ethical how questions, right? Rather than the why questions. Should we do something is key in these conversations. Like how do we balance that scale? Maybe that's part of that enlightenment battle that you highlighted earlier. Yeah, I think we are why creatures. Like I think that's what makes us different, that we're we're why creatures. And that's that second enlightened idea of freedom, you know, the Kant idea that we ask, why is this better than that? And we expect someone else to have a reason why this is better, why this is better than that. Like not just how do you get there, but why, why are you trying to get there? In the essay, I mean I had this funny thought about colonialism, you know, that when you're colonized, you're not a why creature, you're just a how creature. And colonize, the question is like, how much work can I get out of you? How long till you die and I replace you with somebody else? How many calories do I have to feed you, get you to do this or that? And there's a funny way that I think we're becoming colonized. We are becoming how creatures. You know, we're forgetting how to ask the why creatures. And going back to our earlier part of our conversation, the machines don't know how to ask why questions. You know, they just don't care. And if there are major interlocutors, of course, we're going to get worse and worse at asking why questions. And we're going to slowly become persuaded, overwhelmed. We'll think like, oh, only the how questions matter. And with STEM, I mean, I'm all in favor of kids learning math, but it should be math as like a beautiful, wonderful thing and not just math as a means to an end. Like I love math. And it should also be math as self-defense. Like if I say that, you know, there are too many billionaires, I want people to know how much a billion dollars actually is, what it means to what's a billion compared to a million compared to, you know, a hundred thousand, because these are qualitative differences that you can only understand if you have some sense of quantity, if you look through like the history of the development of professions, I'm now getting to your ethics point. Every profession has ethics. I mean, they're not always followed, but like they're there. I mean, doctors have ethics, lawyers have ethics, veterinarians have ethics, you know. Academics. That's right. There are codes. But for programmers, there seems to be a bit of a gap here. And given that programmers are the kind of unacknowledged legislators of our times, right? Like they're the ones who are guiding a lot of stuff that we don't see, it seems like it would make sense to have a semester of ethics be mandatory, right, for anybody who's going to be doing that job. Why not? I mean, doctors have to, you know, doctors have to swear an oath. I would venture to say that there are a lot of programmers who are more important to our mental and physical health than a lot of doctors. So maybe they should also be, you know, required to go through some kind of ethical training. When you were talking about the how piece, it reminded me very much of this minimal viable product that is very much a part of the Silicon Valley perspective, that if we create the most basic thing, let's get it to product, let's get it out to market, and then let the market decide. So it, it seems like even in the way we're discussing the business of technology, the business of innovation, it's very much in-how space, right? Like minimum viable product is just how, to that colonial point, is just What's the least I need to do, the minimum I need to do to get this out? And then the market will give me all my feedback. Yeah. I mean, the very idea of hacking, which, you know, again, like as a teenager, I found very sympathetic, like a hack. I mean, a hack is the simplest way to do something. You hack through, you don't worry that you're leaving this on the ground and that, you know, you've knocked over that thing. You've hacked, you've hacked your way through. I mean, in the book I'm trying to finish now about how things could be better. 
I use the category of brain hacks. Like what's the easiest way that a digital system can use to break through precisely the more enlightened parts of us? What's the easiest way to do that? Turns out there's some, it's hard to build up a person. It's easy to bring a person down. But yeah, I mean, the weird thing is that then, as you say about Silicon Valley, absolutely, it's all about how questions and they like, they do it so quickly that it becomes normal, but then their ethical views kind of bleed out on the edges, right? Like, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be good if I could live forever is an ethical view. It's just a terribly uninterrogated ethical view, which leads to a ungodly, just awful ethical system. But shouldn't I live forever is an ethical view. <laughs> or shouldn't my friends and I go to Mars? I mean, yeah, you know, that's an ethical view. It's just a terrible one. And what happens to the rest of us who aren't on that ship? <laughs> we haven't booked our passage. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that's exactly it. Because, I mean, I love that you're like, ta- that you've like put ethics in the middle of this because ethics means you and me, or it doesn't mean anything, right? Like if yeah. I don't recognize that you're human, or you don't recognize I'm human, then we're not in the ethical world. So ethics, one thing it cannot be about is escape. It can't be you and your friends have the right to go to Mars, but no one else does. Or, you know, me and my friends have the right to live forever, but nobody else does, right? It's a should view, right? I should live forever on Mars, you know, but it doesn't hold up as ethics because it can't be made reciprocal. And politically, that's a big fissure too, because the moment, I mean, this category of escape, it seems to be very important politically as well. Because once you decide it's all about me going to Mars and living forever, then why should I pay my taxes now? You know, why should I care about anything going on here? It's all academic. <laughs> yeah. And if you're the people who control the resources that are needed to make sure that, for example, kids actually get a decent education in math or whatever we're talking about in the history, humanities, if you're the person who controls the resources and your idea is I'm going to live forever on Mars, you know, I mean, I wish this were less of a parody than it is. It's a little bit of a parody, but it's not much of a parody. If that's your idea, then, you know, you're in a different space, right? Raymond Ahon said that, like, from a certain difference in wealth, there's no longer human communication. That's doubly true in our digital world. You can really live in your own patch and not like take in, like you can claim you're an American company or whatever, but you know, you're not really taking in what life is like for other people. Yeah. The new digital gilded age is, is striking and it, and it does sound like parody, but it's true because you see these conversations in the normal discourse and they're everywhere in business as in terms of how people are making decisions how they're spending their resources, allocating resources. You're seeing this everywhere. Academics, you know, MIT Media Lab is a perfect example of that, where you can't divorce yourself from these questions, even if they're not framed in an ethical perspective. I want to get to one other question before I go into a couple of segments, because I'm watching the time. And I want to kind of maybe potentially, you're working on a new book, you're kind of hashing out a lot of concepts that I know are political, historical basis, but also covering some of this kind of technological space. In a world that's seeming less and less trustworthy, the information that we have, what would be something that you think we can all do to navigate these spaces? Like, is there a positive outcome that we can enact as an item or more than one item? I have a really simple answer that I give all the time, which is, investigative journalists are like an endangered species and it's not that hard to find them you know to find the reporters who actually go out and cover things and then like if you're on social media follow those people if you're on social media pass on their work make friends with these people because financially 
and every other way, they need your help. I mean, it sounds totally simple, but if we all devoted more of our Twitter and more of our Facebook or whatever to just passing on the hard work of journalists who actually travel and talk to people before they write anything down, if we just make them pass that test, then we're helping. Then we're helping financially. I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, a fact, I mean, Simone Weil said this, that like a fact has costs, like financial costs and human costs. It's always a little bit risky to go out and find a fact. And so you, we have to bear some of those costs by helping those people out even more so today. So that's my simple answer. Awesome. I want to jump into my off the dome segment. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire, semi rapid fire questions. And the first thought or idea that comes to your mind is going to be maybe the right one, <laughs> at, least in, at least at this moment. Okay, for your purposes. All right. No pressure though. In your opinion, the best portrayal of our potential future is that 2001 A Space Odyssey or The Matrix? The Matrix. Definitely The Matrix. The Matrix is much richer and it gives you a whole framework. It gives you a whole framework like that you can start thinking like this is The Matrix. Whereas 2001 is like, yeah, things are basically as they are, but maybe there's like one bad robot actor. So no, The Matrix. You can only settle in one city for the rest of your life. New York City or Vienna? Oh, man. Okay, so I got to say Vienna. It's just much better. I mean, I love New York City. I go down there all the time. I couldn't live without my friends down there. I couldn't live without my colleagues down there. I can't imagine this country without the place. You know, I mean, after 9-11, like New York became kind of like the capital of my heart, like seeing how people reacted to 9-11. But if it's about life, and it's about life with like a family and kids and growing old, I'm afraid Vienna just outclasses Manhattan, not even close. All right. Now, you speak five languages. This is not the question, but I'm, I'm curious. What are the five languages that you speak? Well, my test for whether I speak a language is whether I can give a lecture in it. And those are English, French, German, Polish, Ukrainian. And I kind of speak other languages too, but I wouldn't stand up in front of people and subject them to them. Okay. <laughs> of the five languages that you're fluent, meaning you can give a lecture in, what's your favorite to curse somebody out? I don't curse people out. <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't do that. Let's see. What do I? What do I actually curse in? If I do curse, I curse in English. I think fr like French. I find French weak to curse in. I mean, maybe people will correct me. Polish has the most of the languages that I know well. Polish has the most range. Like you know, you would think that like the variants of like the fuck fuck off in English, there are a lot of them. But in Polish, there are like hundreds of them, and you can use that. You can use the F word, you can combine it with pretty much any other verb in the language, which is not available in English. So I never do that, though. I never do that. I don't curse people. Okay. <laughs> what is the one lesson that you wish people would just sort of get? What's the one thing that if you can give them one takeaway, what would it be? Oh, gosh. I mean, better to be nonconformist than conformist. Like, better to be unpredictable than predictable. And this is my last one. We're heading into 2020 and without political theories or, you know, I'm not going to editorialize optimistic or pessimistic in 2020. Optimistic. I don't believe in optimism or pessimism, but like, if you mean like, do I think good people can win? Yes, I think good people can win in 2020. And then I think it can make a difference. I think it makes a difference who wins in 2020. I find myself in a much different mood than a lot of like Democrats who are like, well, who knows? Maybe the wrong candidate, the right candidate. Just put somebody up there, you know, just like a, a person, that person is, is then going to win. That's my view. 
any of you guys, whatever. I don't feel good about the way the country's going in general, but I don't, I mean, as you know, like I feel awful about a lot of things, but I don't think it's so far gone that we won't have an election which is close enough to being technically fair that someone else can win. And I think one of the ways authoritarianism wins in the 21st century is by instructing you that you can't really make a difference. You might as well stay on the couch. It doesn't really matter. You know, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe the other person is just as corrupt. And I see a lot of Americans kind of drifting that way. I don't feel that way at all. I think it makes a tremendous difference. And I think like we can still find somebody decent who at least at the top will, will change things radically. So no, I feel okay about 2020. Awesome. My final segment is the drop where you can give a recommendation to our listeners as to something that you think is noteworthy, relevant, something they should check out. It can be anything. I have one as well, but I'm going to let you go first. Oh man, I'm such a boring guy. I mean, like mine would be like, read the local newspaper wherever you are, you know, that, that would be mine. That counts. There's a lot of local newspapers. I mean, okay. Th- and here's another one that a lot of other people have said. Mid-century dystopian novels, really, really helpful for the present day. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> very, very rich. Okay. So at least you're, you're not like going to ask me my favorite band or anything. Are you? No, no, no. That was, you know, just mid-century dystopian novels. That's good. Check them out. My drop is going to be actually a design book. So I'm, I'm trying to give people something a little bit inspirational or something I found inspirational recently, which is by Dieter Rams. And the one that I really love is called As Little Design as Possible. And it talks about the clarity and cleanness of design and what it should mean toward making beautiful things. And I think we can all use some beautiful things. So that's my drop for this episode. I want to thank you for being on the show, joining me. This was great. I had an awesome time. Thank you. I did too. Really good talking to you. I'm glad we're staying in touch. It's been a pleasure having Professor Tim Snyder join me on the deep dive. We covered quite a bit in our talk and could have gone even longer. Look forward to having Professor Snyder on the deep dive in the future. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and at our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via Far Flung Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side. <laughs>